Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be continuing this morning in our study through the life of David. We have, in kind of an on-again, off-again sort of a way, we've had this series has been interrupted by various holidays and other things that we've been trying to do. But this morning, we come back to the life of David. And we began this study way back months ago in 1 Samuel 15 when we took up the story of when Saul disobeyed God. You remember God gave him a command, and what Saul did was he replaced God's commands with his own judgments. Basically, Saul, in a prideful fit of disobedience, elevated his own judgments over those of God, God's commands. And because he did that, God stripped the kingdom away from him. Through the prophet Samuel, Saul was confronted and called out, and God said, I'm going to give your kingdom to another, a neighbor of yours. And ever since that time, we've been studying the life of David. David, of course, was the young man who was anointed by God to be Saul's successor. And we've noted many times that this long span of chapters, when, David, when Saul is king, but David is supposed to be, mirrors the days in which we're living when there's another on the throne over this world to which Jesus is destined. Jesus is supposed to be king, but there's another who's sitting on that throne. And we're living in the midst of days that are very much like the ones we've been studying so far in 1 Samuel and the life of David. And now we're coming to the unhappy end of the life of this unhappy man, Saul. We've watched his shocking deterioration from a noble king who seemed sincere in his desire to please and honor God to just deteriorate over time. We were shocked and appalled when he had all the priests in the land murdered on nothing other than a paranoid delusion that they were not for him. We've been shocked along the way as he has made promises and broken them and murdered and done all kinds of evil things. And now this morning we come to 1 Samuel 28, which is a puzzling chapter in our Bibles. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's fairly lengthy. So if you're like me who grew up with my mom and dad who read to you at bedtime, when somebody reads to me, I just kind of fall asleep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you do start to get sleepy, just pinch yourself or something like that. But I'm going to read the entire chapter. 1 Samuel 28. These are the very words of our God. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish, that's the king of the Philistines, said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. I'll pause here for just a little bit. If you weren't with us in our last study of 1 Samuel 27, David, because Saul is so persistently trying to kill him, has fled from Israel into Philistine. It's a bit like in Star Wars, where Han Solo flies the Millennium Falcon into the asteroid field, right? <laughs> like, these destroyers are definitely going to kill me, and the asteroids probably will, but maybe I'll survive. So he goes to the Philistines, and the Philistines take him in. And he's been living this double agent kind of a life ever since. 
doing some pretty awful things. We remember from 1 Samuel 27. We pick it up again here, verse 3. So that's why he's living with the Philistines. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. When Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke to me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear. Because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words, so he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. 
Then they rose and went away that night. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we dive in here and unpack this chapter together, Father, I pray that you would put a guard over my mouth. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, guide us into truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 28 opens with a large, full-scale invasion of Israel by the Philistines. Every other invasion by the Philistines up to this point, by the way, has been in the south, directed down towards Judah, which is closer to where the population centers of the Philistines are. But if you look at a map of the Holy Land, this is uh, what, what the Philistines do is they go up along the coastal plain and then cut in to the north, far up north in Israel, up around by the Sea of Galilee. And I think maybe one of the ideas we get from this is that the border region between Philistia and Israel has been hardened a little bit. They're on the lookout. They're ready for an invasion. And so this idea of going way up to the north and then coming in from the north is to get around some of those parts of Israel where they're kind of battle-hardened. They're used to Philistine incursions. And this might also indicate there's a little bit more forethought and planning behind this invasion than some of the previous ones. It's probably a larger invasion. Barbarian hordes are just pouring across the border, menacing the countryside. And Saul mounts a defense. And both armies end up facing each other in a place called the Valley of Jezreel. They're separated by a plain, maybe four or five miles wide. The Israelites are camped on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistine army is at the base of a hill called Mora, about four and a half, five miles distant across the plain. And behind their army, you'd have to go all the way around the Philistine army, there's a small little village called Endor. So Saul's camp on Mount Gilboa and the village of Endor, where he's going to have this interaction with a necromancer, a witch, is separated by the Philistine army. They're in the way. He would have had to go around them to get to Endor, which speaks to some, something to the desperation of the man. That with only two bodyguards at night disguised, he would attempt something so dangerous as this. As you may remember from our study of the previous chapter, David has fled to the Philistines along with a sizable and growing following of armed men. The Philistine king Achish has given them the abandoned city of Ziklag as a place to live. And David and his men have been engaged ever since in a very bloody way of making a living. He and his men have been occupying themselves day by day, raiding neighboring tribes, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. And when they encounter a band of these semi-nomadic peoples, they completely wipe them out. They kill everyone, leaving no survivors. And that way, when they bring the spoil back to King Achish of the Philistines, they can say, we actually have been raiding and killing our fellow Israelites. We took these from them. And there are no survivors to tell the tale and say, no, we were actually Amalekites. And this actually works. Achish is completely duped. He believes this double agent act and thinks that David has made an absolute stench of himself in his own homeland. And he is now his servant forever because there's no going back after killing your own people like this. However, no, now, no doubt to David's alarm, in chapter 28, Achish proposes that David and his men are to accompany him personally 
as he goes out to war against Israel. And in response, David gives kind of a cryptic answer, right? He says, now you'll get to see firsthand what we can do. And it's impossible to know what David was thinking as he said it. We'll have to wait until chapter 29 to see how David gets out of this pickle, though, because the remainder of this chapter is not going to follow our hero David and his exploits, but is instead going to recount a very strange story about Saul and this witch of Endor. It's an account that features some decidedly spooky elements. There are nighttime visitors in disguise, premonitions of an impending death. There are witches, fortune-telling, necromancy, and a ghostly apparition speaking from beyond the grave. And in the midst of all this spookiness, there arises for us some questions, right? Like, is this passage really saying that it's possible for people to communicate with the dead? Is that in our Bibles? Is this really Samuel at all that the witch conjures? Or is it some other entity, like a demon or something? Are there real powers at work behind these kinds of occult practices? These are troubling questions, and questions, frankly, we don't often entertain in the church. So let me speak to what I will call the spooky questions of 1 Samuel 28, and then we'll move on to what I think is actually the main point of this chapter. Some of the spookier elements in this account are kind of the elephant in the room. So if I didn't address them, they might serve as a distraction from what I think is the main thing that God would want us to take away from this chapter. So I don't want to make the spooky stuff the main part of what we're going to talk about this morning, but I can't just ignore it either, because <laughs> we're all sitting here wondering, what's going on with this stuff? So after... Uh, Diving into the spooky side here, we'll move on to what I think is the most important thing for us to come away with. First, let me just say this. There's a lot of disagreement among Bible scholars, guys, with much, guys and gals with much bigger, better brains than Josh Tate, about whether or not this is truly Samuel that is conjured from the dead. For example, St. Augustine believed that the woman called forth a demon who impersonated Samuel. Maimonides chalked the whole thing up to Saul's diseased imagination. Others theorize that because Saul asks the woman in verse 13, what do you see, that Saul never actually saw Samuel or even heard his voice, but was de dependent on the medium like a fortune teller with a crystal ball. And if this is true, then maybe the woman fabricated the whole thing. In fact, when we read these verses carefully, there's really nothing definitive that says Saul personally saw or heard anything. We're left with the impression that he did. But again, nothing definitive in the language would decisively say that he did or not. A fourth possibility is that it really is Samuel. <coughs> so those seem to be the options. One, it's a demon, not Samuel. Two, Saul has gone completely cuckoo in the coconut, and this is all a big delusion. Three, the woman is a fraud who fools them all by describing visions and words that she conveniently is the only one who can perceive them. Or four, 
Samuel actually makes an appearance from beyond the, from beyond the grave for one final interaction with Saul. For what it's worth, here's my opinion, and what it's worth is not much, <laughs> but I invite you to get along with your Bibles and read this for yourself and arrive at your own conclusions, but here's what I think. I think that witches and mediums and sorcerers and charmers and necromancers and those who use omens and divination, tarot cards, palm readers, crystal balls, you name it, are tapping into something that is real and wicked. Christians believe in the supernatural. We're not secularists. We're supernaturalists. And as Ephesians 6.12 puts it very plainly, there are rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness, and there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, God in his very word says that these things are real, but in the same breath, they are unbelievably wicked. So when we come to a chapter like this, the point is not that these things are not real in their power but that we as God's people should not under any circumstances engage or participate with them. They're evil. I think that this woman has made her living as a necromancer, interacting with demonic forces in the unseen realm. People come to her house, wanting to communicate with the dead, either for sentimental reasons or because they want advice or knowledge of the future. And when she does this, she calls upon a familiar spirit, a demon who then gives her information seemingly from beyond the grave to communicate things back to the living. However, in my opinion, in this case, something goes very differently than she expects. The strange man who's come to her house requests that she conjures up the prophet Samuel, and at first this request does not seem to bother her. But then something very surprising happens, and I think there's nobody in the room who's more surprised than the medium, this necromancer. Samuel actually shows up. And I think the text indicates that nobody was more surprised by his appearing than her, herself. When she sees Samuel, it says that she cried out with a loud voice, or your version might say at the top of her voice. The impression there is that she is suddenly surprised and terrified. Guys, she's done this hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times. She knows the song and dance routine. She holds all the cards. She knows exactly what's going to happen. But all of it is turned upside down when emerging from her crystal ball or whatever it was, emerges the visage of God's very representative, Samuel. And she's horrified. She says, you, that's really Samuel, you're Saul. She suddenly puts it all together. In this moment, she's shocked to discover what she's in the midst of. So I think the most probable interpretation is that this woman begins her usual routine of calling upon demonic intelligence from a familiar spirit in the unseen realm, just as she's done loads of times, but then unexpectedly, Samuel shows up. And not in response to her powers as a conjurer, but because he has been given one last prophetic assignment by God. 
One reason why I think this really is Samuel is because everything that he says to Saul is true. And it agrees in a consistent way with everything that God has communicated to Saul up to this point. In a way, this moment brings everything full circle for Saul. Way back in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul disobeyed God, and Samuel tells him that he's been rejected by God as king, Samuel says this to Saul. This is found in chapter 15, verse 23. He says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Do you see there the reference to divination? Samuel said that Saul's rebellious act at the first was like the sin of divination that he now commits here at the end. These are two fitting bookmarks on a very sad story of a very unhappy man. Divination refers to trying to get revelation about the future and about God's secret plans by using demonic means. The prophet Samuel likened Saul's initial act of rebellion in which he replaces God's commands with his own human judgments. He likens that to the sin of divination in which a man looks not to God for supernatural guidance but to another source. Saul and Samuel paint such a striking contrast in this moment, don't they? These two men talking back and forth from opposite sides of the grave. Samuel asks the old king, why have you disturbed me? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress. So this is a strange case of, a, of the living haunting the dead. And whereas Sam, the deceased Samuel is depicted as resting, calm, and at peace in the grave, Saul is depicted as tormented and fearful as he thinks about going to the grave. We're reminded of Jesus' own words, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What has Saul gained by holding on to that throne with a white-knuckle grip? Samuel tells Saul that on the very next day, he and his sons would join him in the grave. And this fills, this fills Saul with such terror that he collapses. His white-knuckle grip on that crown has proven to be like a swimmer clinging to a cinder block. Here Samuel, who willingly surrendered his office as judge when the people demanded a king, and his successor Saul, who refused to step aside when God, not men, commanded it. So the old prophet returns to the grave as one returning to his rest and reward, and he leaves the wretched king to contemplate his own soon rendezvous with the grave with bitterness and terror. Saul's journey to the witch's house is really a microcosm of the man. The whole pattern of his life has been to travel in darkness, disguising his true self, rejecting the word of the Lord, and hell-bent on a bad end. That's Saul, in a nutshell. So those are some of the spookier things going on in this chapter. 
But those questions pale in comparison, I think, to a bigger question. In another portion of Scripture, 1 Chronicles 10, 13 through 14, we find a bit of commentary on our passage for this morning. It says this, it says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. And we're going to see this in the coming weeks. We're going to see, Scripture is going to show us the final end of Saul. He is going to die, just as the prophet Samuel tells him. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, this verse, when I read it, instantly rose a question in my heart that is quite possibly in yours also. And it's this. In those verses, Saul is faulted for not seeking guidance from the Lord. But in our text for this morning, 1 Samuel 28, it says of Saul that when he saw the Philistine army and his heart trembled with fear, that he inquired of the Lord in three different ways. By dreams, by Urim, and by the prophets. We talked about the Urim earlier. The priests in those days had a garment that they would wear. And in that garment, there were, we don't actually know what they looked like, but there were some kind of a stones, or almost like dice, you might call them. And one of the ways that the priests would um, help the people discern the will of God is they would take those things and do something with them by which they would determine what God's will was in any given matter. So a king would quite, quite commonly go to the priests, and he would say, let's consult God by the Urim on this question. And they would produce these things, do whatever they did with them. We don't actually know. And then by some sign from those, they would discern uh, what God's will was in that matter. This is something the kings would do. However, you remember from our study through the life of David, what did Saul do to all the priests in the land? He killed them. <laughs> he killed every single last one, except for one who fled to David and is still with him, presumably. So in their wake, Saul has just raised up this illegitimate group of replacement scab priests, if you will, and has said, okay, you guys are priests now. And so he goes to these imposters who weren't raised to that place by God, but just by Saul's uh, fiat, and he's now consulting them about these things. So anyway, but the question is this, how can it say he didn't seek guidance from God when it seems that he does earnestly? He's like, God, show up in my dreams. I'm praying. I'm talking to the prophets. I'm consulting the Urim. I'm doing everything I can to establish contact with you. I need guidance. I need direction. God, won't you speak? But then 1 Chronicles 10 says, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. What do we make of this? Well, for the little bit of time we have left, I want to... to show you why I think it is that Saul, it cannot be said of him that he sought the Lord. The first point is this. Saul does not seek God's guidance in the right spirit. In all of his misery and desire for guidance, there is no trace of the broken or contrite heart that is acceptable to God. There's no submission to God, no sorrow for disobedience, none of it. I, I have, and I've told you this story before from the pulpit, but for years, like a full decade, Sarah and I worked in a camping ministry in Southern California. 
And one of the great things about that job is we worked with young people all the time. We would recruit this uh, summer staff every summer. 12, 15 young people would come work at the campground, and it was like a 24-hour youth group with an emphasis on service. We'd have Bible studies and great discussions, and we would really get to know these kids in a, in a deep way over the course of living and serving together at that camp for the summer. And I remember very often as I'd get to know these young people, and they would open up to me about things, um, very often, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time it happened, I'd probably have maybe $15. I don't know. It, it's not like I'd be rich, but I'd have, uh, you know, I could go to Tim Hortons or something with you. But what they would say to me was, Josh, I just really want to know God's will. Sh- should, I, sh- should I go out with Bobby? <laughs> right? Or whatever. I just want to know God's will. Which college should I go to? What, what should I do for a career? And because I'd gotten to know these young people, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, and sometimes I'm saying out loud, I know God's will for you, and it's to stop punching in 10 minutes late when your shift starts in the kitchen. I I know God's will for you, it's to stop gossiping. I, I know God's will for you, it's to stop whatever. This pattern of sin that's in your life You see, you're coming to God saying, I want guidance from you. I want to know what the future holds, what I should do. Should I zig? Should I zag? When all the time when God is actually speaking to you explicitly through his word, you're just going, na, 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 right? And very often Christians do this. And that's what Saul is doing right here, okay? God has been talking to him. God has spoken to him by the prophets. He has spoken to him by the priests, He has spoken to him in all these different ways by his son Jonathan, by David himself. Everybody and their uncle has been talking to Saul. And what has he done all along the way? And now he's scared. So he goes, God, you got to guide me. And God, you're not interested in listening to me. That's ridiculous. That's why I don't think this is a fair statement. Secondly, God's guidance was not sought for the right reasons. We know that Saul does not really want to know God's will so that he can respond obediently because of the way he goes about it. What a strange thing to say to God's representative Samuel, what should I do? When how is this whole conversation taking place? What is the context of the whole conversation? He's gone to a forbidden medium, a necromancer. Earlier in his reign, we're told in this very chapter, Saul had sought to drive all the mediums out of the land. So we know that he knew it was against God's law. And with with God, the ends do not justify the means here. It seems that Saul does not seek God's guidance so that he might know it and do it. He just wants to know what the future holds. He's worried. He'd like an advance peek at tomorrow's headlines. Therefore, it cannot truly be said that Saul sought God's guidance because he never demonstrated a willingness to do what God commanded. He simply sought to use God by seeking knowledge of what the future held for him personally. And just like when God let the Israelites who were wandering in the desert and who were complaining about not having any meat, 
God said, okay, you want meat? Here's a bunch of quail. (laughs) And they all got sick to their stomachs. They threw up on it. They became nauseated. Or like when the people rejected God's place over them as ruler by asking for a human king. king. There are instances in the Bible, there are places where God gives bad men the desires of their heart so that they can taste how bitter it is. In the same way, God gives Saul what he asks for. You want to know what the future holds? I'll tell you. I'll send Samuel. Even though it does nothing to make him feel better and in fact makes him even more terrified. But here's the last thing I want you to see about Saul. And it's, it's a hard word. This is one of those words that I actually prayed about, God, do you really want me to share this on Sunday? And it's this, God's guidance was not sought by Saul at the right time. There is a sobering truth here, and it's very biblical. And I want to put it in front of you this morning. Samuel asks why he had been disturbed by Saul, and Saul explains that he needs Samuel to tell him what to do. And really, this is the most ironic answer Saul could have possibly given. At this point, as I already pointed out, Saul has made an absolute career out of turning a deaf ear to the guidance of God, and there has been plenteous guidance from God over the course of the story. How many times have people confronted Saul? We've studied it over and over and over again. And now Saul seeks out Samuel through a necromancer to ask him what he should do. And this is a question for which no answer was possible. The day for doing for Saul was in the past. But after years of persistent, unrepentant disobedience and self-willed warring against the purposes of God, we've come to this unhappy day when an unhappy man hears an unhappy truth. He comes to a time and position in which no action on his part could reverse God's judgments concerning his fate. Psalm 32.6 says this, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Isaiah 55.6 and 7 say this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Proverbs 1, 24 through 33 says this, Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. Think about that. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. 
Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It's a hard word out of Proverbs 1. And my last scripture is this, Hebrews 12, 17. This is speaking of Esau. It says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, more often than not, here from this pulpit, we preach the gospel truth of grace. And that is truth. That is the central load-bearing pillar of the Christian faith. But what these verses and what the life of Samuel, Saul is teaching us is that for those who have heard the truth and have continued in an unrepentant way, there is a point at which the heart is allowed by God to become calloused, the conscience seared. They get to a point where they have entered into judgment. They have spurned grace, they've spurned the gospel, they've spurned living for the truth. And then they are quite beyond help. I love it, it says here in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. For he will abundantly pardon. This is crying out from God's word, the time is now to repent. I think there are Christians very often who fall into patterns of sinful disobedience. And at one time, your heart was soft to that sin. You felt cut in your heart when God would confront you over it. And you would cry. And you would plead with God. You would seek Him. You would repent. But then the pattern came back in, and over time, your conscience has become seared. You no longer feel shame in the presence of God over that sin, whatever it is. And if this is true, then we need to look on the life of Saul with a certain measure of horror. We need to look on this, that one of the things that proves that our confession of faith is a sincere one is that we endure in the faith, that we persevere. And that sometimes what happens is someone is proven to become an imposter when they, like Saul, become hardened to the correction of God. They, they no longer, as it turns out, cared much about what God had to say. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. And it's just you and the Holy Spirit in the quiet place of your heart. But is there some hidden pattern of sin? Is there something there that God has spoken to you about down through the years? And it's been a while since you and God had a conversation about that thing. Because like Saul, you haven't really been seeking him. What God is saying to us, I think, the warning here in the story of Saul is that when Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world, that is a promise that trouble is going to come. There are going to be times where we're going to look out and our hearts are going to tremble for fear at the horrible prospect. And we're going to turn to God. 
and we're going to seek his guidance. And on that day, will God say, you don't care about my guidance. I've been speaking to you for years about A, B, C, and D. Guys, if today you are in a place that is quiet, the Philistine army is not in front of you, this is the day for repentance. This is the day to do some spiritual house cleaning. To come before God and with tears and confession, turn to him. Call upon him while he is near. He's near today. These are the days of grace. These are the days where the doors are wide open and anyone can enter in who believes the truth and loves the truth of it. Let him return to the Lord, it says, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, when we're Christians, we preach grace. We preach the love of God, and all that is very true. But let's also not fail to do justice to the reality of punishment and wrath, the seriousness of sin. The cross is a symbol not only of God's love, but also how much he hates the sin. And Saul thought he could play both sides of the fence. It's disastrous. And in the end, it does not bring him to a happy place. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a kind of a dark ending to our time together. But God, that's the flavor of 1 Samuel 28. How different is Saul's last meal in a witch's house from the last meal of Jesus in the upper room? Saul's death, Lord, feels to us like futility, pointless, a waste. The death of Jesus is so full of promise and potential. Father, we remember from this chapter this contrasting picture of Samuel for whom the grave is rest and reward, awaiting for the promised day when Jesus returns and the living and the dead are, are raised and meet him in the sky for judgment. Father Samuel laid up for himself a treasure. And Saul, Lord, contemplates the grave with this bitter sense that he's blown it. He's made an absolute waste of the days he was given under the sun. He lived for the wrong things. And Father, this is a sober message. This is a sober, heavy way to bring our message to an end this morning. But God, I have to believe that you are doing business with people in the quiet places of their heart right now. And the message is a hopeful one. That if we care, if our hearts rise to what you're saying here, it, does, it means that we are not beyond hope. God, if our hearts are broken in your presence over our sin, over those patterns of disobedience that exist in our own heart, Father, there exists here the, the possibility, Father, more than the possibility, the promise that you are faithful to forgive all those who ask it of you. God, that today we can repent we can ask you, Lord, for help by the Holy Spirit in putting these sins to death. You have given us means of grace by which we can be held accountable to these good purposes. 
Christian brothers and sisters with whom we can share the big ugly and ask them to help hold us accountable to our good resolves. Father, I pray that we would go out of here serious about the business of putting sin to death. Because either we are killing sin or sin is killing us. Father, we thank you for the promise that in Romans 8.1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cling to that promise. We know, Lord, that we're not saved because we're good or because of our doing. But we also know that all those who have passed from death to life love righteousness and fight sin. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help affirm in our own spirits that we're not a Saul, an imposter. But, God, you would, by giving us victory over sin by the Holy Spirit, affirm and assure us of our own salvation. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.